This episode of the Enhancement Talent Podcast is brought to you by Paul E. Dangerously Brand Cell Phones. If you need to make an important business call or smash something over Tom Zank's head, make sure the phone you use is a Paul E. Dangerously Brand Cell Phone. Available at your local Radio Shack and Circuit City. What do you get when you add three or more badass wrestlers on the same team? You get a stable, my friend. Join us on this episode of the Enhancement Talent Podcast as we count down our top 10 best stables of all time. All right. Welcome back to another episode of the Enhancement Talent Podcast. I am your host, the man in the rafters, the one they call Tony Lopez. With me, as always, is one half of the fabulous Lopez Cousins, Dr. Bob Lopez. How you doing, Bob? Doing great, sir. How are you? Doing well, doing well. And with us again, out from beautiful Island Lake, Illinois, the Warsaw Blonde himself, Mr. Adam Kolavik. How you doing, Adam? Good. How are you, gentlemen? Good, good, sir. Since we're doing a wrestling-themed podcast, have any of us ever dressed up as a wrestling character for Halloween? Oh, yes. Ooh. Nice. <laughs> I don't think Indulged. I ever have. I, I neither. I neither. I never did. Really? I'm surprised. Well, uh, actually, actually one, one year, this might be a technicality, but one year I tried to be Dennis Rodman where I put on the fake tattoos and the Bulls jersey, and I spray-painted my hair, and he was a member of the NWO, so maybe technically I was. Well, there I'll you go. Ca- I'll count it. Nice. Well, I have to say, and I believe I mentioned it on our, um, on our uh, the least favorite wrestlers, uh, I dressed up as Doink the Clown, uh, I think my sophomore year in high school. And my cousin actually dressed up as him also. So we were doing the dueling doink thing, you know, doing the, the mirror thing that, that they used to do to each other after they smashed Crush with the fake arms. So I did that. And the year before <laughs> that, I kid you not, I was Skinner. Yes, Steve Kern. My dad burned some cork and put it on my face because I was only 14 and I couldn't grow facial hair till I was about 22. So I put some cork on and and uh, I had a, a can full of chocolate uh, sauce and I would spit it in a, in a can like Skinner used to spit his chew in the can. And nice. uh, yeah, uh, I was in Boy Scouts. We had a Halloween party every year and I don't think anyone knew who the hell I was. That's but awesome. I still thought it well, rocked. Well, you really had to be tuning into uh, the superstars to know who Skinner was at that point, you know. I I, I can't tell you why I liked him, but I was a big Skinner mark. I remember he spat uh, chew all over Lord Alfred Hayes on primetime wrestling once, and I think that's where the where the fandom started. Well, I mean, did you get a lot of like, are you Crocodile Dundee? Or, or something like that when you were doing that? Because that was around that time era. I was more like, who the hell are you? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'm Skinner, and if you uh, if you piss me off, I'm going to spit this chew all over you. So people kind of backed off, man. Oh, well. 
I remember seeing him wrestle Tatanka at a house show too, and he lost, and I was so mad. I, it took me like five matches to settle down. Tatanka never jobs. He didn't very much. No. <laughs> Buffalo well, it's, World it's Wrestling too, Federation. Yeah, it's never too late to be a Brooklyn Brawler one of these days, Adam. Yeah, no, that's true. You know, want to say hi to everybody out there in podcast land, especially the new potential listeners we have through Spotify and Stitcher, which have just added our wondrous show here. I know we're all very excited to be on those platforms and potentially get out to new listeners. So hopefully, if you're listening to the show for the first time, go back, listen to all our all our other episodes and yeah, subscribe and follow us on the platform so you know when new episodes drop. All right. Well, today uh, we've decided that we are going to give our top 10 best wrestling stables, according to us, our own personal top 10 best wrestling stables. Now, what is a stable? A stable is a group of wrestlers joined together for, you know, a common cause, kind of like, you know, professional wrestling's version of a street gang, basically, you know, a united front going against all comers. Um, the criteria that we had here for, um, for stables was it has to have at least three members in it. And that was pretty much it, you know, a stable, three more members and just the impact that they had in the wrestling business on top of your own personal preference goes into your own top tens. Um, Bob, when you're making your list, um, what to you is, um, goes into a great stable? Like what, what does it need? Ooh, a great stable for me is, um, a group of guys or some females, um, as well that uh, have a long lasting impression. Like you said, it's, it's a group that is put together to come take on all factions, all comers, but it also can do so much more. Um, sometimes it's, it's just like, a, it's just like a, a professional sports team. Sometimes you have your professionals, the veterans in there, and then you mix in the rookies and you get the rookies some time to uh, kind of learn from the veterans. And, and that this, possible faction slash stable you know that it can make this person it can make or break them some sometimes unfortunately a stable will be put together because they have nothing to do with these people and you'll have horrible groups like adam mentioned um when we did our least favorite with the oddities or you know we threw in kai and tai they're just kind of filler like hey we have no idea what to do with these people but then you have a stable that just comes together out of nowhere and it just lasts makes a huge long-lasting impression on professional wrestling that you're like wow those people change the business here and there. And that to me is what a, a good stable does. Nice. How about you, Adam? What goes into a good stable? Looking over my list with, with few exceptions, I think uh, main eventing, like, uh, you know, just being a major part of the show week after week. Um, that's that, uh, that comprises a, a lot of my list. I think, good workers too. just this guys that uh, are front and center that again, are, at the center of the show, they, uh, as Bob mentioned, they kind of um, they take on everybody. They're they're 
prominently featured and, and they're a huge part of the show and the fans are into them either they really love them or they really hate them um and again it's it's kind of a collection of guys uh sometimes it's veterans mixed in with younger guys or it's family members or or or, or close friends and it's just the chemistry works together you just uh Again, you 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 either really love them or hate them, but the chemistry has to be there one way or another. Because as we mentioned, the oddities, yeah, you just threw a bunch of guys together. So I'll spoiler alert: they are not on my top ten. But <laughs> a lot of guys <laughs> in my top ten uh, have great chemistry and uh, are amongst the most talked about wrestlers of the era that uh, they wrestled in as a in a stable. I will not sit here and listen to you besmirch the chemistry between Kurgan and the giant Silva. I just won't do it. I won't do it. It's no, no, no. The oddities were pretty freaking horrible. And yeah, like I agree with you. I mean, it all comes down to chemistry. If these guys can't work together to form a cohesive whole, not only is the stable not going to work, it's not going to be long lasting either. So yeah, I think that, that both of you raise very good points in what makes a great heel. And we'll get into our lists, you know, without further ado, we'll do our top 10s. Um, you know, usually we do a top 20, but we decided to just do a top 10 with the stables because they're not really as plentiful. And plus, we kind of wanted to cut down on, you know, since since they're not as you know, like I said, plentiful as like singles wrestlers or tag teams. We didn't want to get into like a whole bunch of like, you know, repetition or whatever. So we just decided to do a top 10 here and we'll just, we'll just spend our time with our top tens and I'll start. Um, my number 10 stable is all built around one man. And that man happened to be the greatest manager in the history of professional wrestling. I'm talking about Bobby the Brain Heenan. My number 10 is the Heenan family. Now, the Heenan family honestly dates all the way back to um, AWA when uh, when, Heenan, when Heenan was there with, like, Bachwinkle and all those other guys. Um, but when I'm talking about the Heenan family, I'm talking about, like, late 80s peak era Heenan family. That's with guys like... Andre the Giant, Haku, Rick Rude, Mr. Perfect. Um, who else was in the Heenan family that I'm forgetting? Uh, Harley Race. Guys like that. You know, Bundy. Yeah, Bundy. You know, guy. everybody who was under Heenan's managerial umbrella were, was part of the Heenan family. And they, you know, Back then, they didn't really form a like it wasn't like a united front. That's why I did, they have I have the Heenan family at number ten. They're kind of low on my list. You know, every once in a while, they would kind of like group up, like more more along the lines of Survivor Series time when they needed a team. You know, you would have the Heenan family teams at Survivor Series, but for most of the time, they would just deal with you know on an individual basis, even though they were part of the Heenan family. But just just that amount of talent you know, under one manager and all being part of the same stable, I I had to I had to put them at number ten. There's just too much talent there to deny it. So yeah, my number ten is the Heenan family. 
I like, I like what I like about the Heenan family, <clears throat> excuse me, is um, I like how they had a common goal. Like when they first started off, their first common goal, their first enemy was Andre the Giant, who at that time was a, was a face. So you have Big John Studd going after him. And then they bring in King yeah. Kong Bundy to after them. And then eventually um, Stud Stud leaves and Andre ends up turning uh, heel. So then their next common enemy is Hogan. So he takes his whole stable group that he has and he's going after Hogan and, and just that's just the whole mentality of the of the group. And that's what I really liked about that. That you know, it's it was like we mentioned earlier, there had to be cohesiveness, there had to be a goal, there had to be chemistry. Well, theirs was a goal, and their goal was to take out the main guy, to always be that bad stable group. And that's what I liked about the the Heenan family. Good choice to start off the show. Um, Thank you. For myself, I go I go current. Um, my number ten is um, actually down in NXT, and that's uh, the undisputed era. Now, when we talk about a stable that's all chemistry, that's all you're going to see with these four guys. What we're talking about uh, the leader of Adam Cole, then you have uh, Red Dragon, Bobby Fish, and Kyle O'Reilly, and Roderick Strong. I mean, a lot of these guys all came together in Ring of Honor together. But then in NXT, they created the Undisputed Era when um, Fish and O'Reilly were distracting uh, Drew McIntyre at the TakeOver pay-per-view. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here comes Adam Cole. And Adam Cole becomes the leader of this group. They call themselves the Undisputed Era. They uh, feud with Sanity and the uh, Authors of Pain. They have those amazing war game matches. I think two of them that I actually had. Um, but they... Uh, they're fun to watch, man. I, I really like the chemistry that they have between them. Then uh, they had Roderick Strong t- turn on uh, Pete Dunne, and he joined the group. And at that time, what I really liked about them is this core of four that they had all had all the NXT belts at the same time. You had the NXT champ and Adam Cole. You had the North American champ and Roderick Strong. You had the tag champs and, and Red Dragon. And it's just that's that's to me is the epitome of a stable dominance 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 and that's what the undisputed era was there like you had mentioned they were main eventing the pay-per-views they were main eventing the nxt shows but they were also just the team to beat and they were just one huge cohesive unit um that was just always fun to watch and for me that's pretty much the definition of a stable for me is is everything that they do and that's why i start off with them as my number 10 the undisputed era Nice. Yeah. You you say it very well. It's like you have four of the top, well, before they came to NXT, four of the top indie guys in, in wrestling. Then they come in under the WWE banner, go to NXT and, and join up. It was, it was a wrestling geeks, you know, dream to have those four guys all in the same stable. It's awesome. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Undisputed Era is... And the fact that they're still the, they're still together and still doing stuff it's it's really cool. I really like them. I like them. I like them more as as heels. But now that they're starting to turn them face, you know, like it's kind of like okay, we'll see how that goes. With especially yeah. you know, uh, it's, it's too early to tell what they're going to do with it. But it's still uh, it's still fun to have them all together. I, I get a feeling like WWE is trying to make them like NXT's version of uh, the Elite almost. But kind of. they're they're good they're good in and of themselves. They don't they don't need the, you know they have really good chemistry together. When they do those vignettes, they're really funny together. 
Yeah, I undisputed era. Good pick. Good pick. All right, Adam, how about your number 10? Now my uh, list starts off from the Attitude Era. Um, of course, the Attitude Era, the one everyone thinks of when you hear the, uh, those two words is Stone Cold Steve Austin. But, you know, you can't be a great face without working with a great group of heels. So uh, Vince McMahon's Corporation uh, starts off my list. Um, now, some of these guys you are we've talked about in the past on our least favorite list, but or they weren't the biggest, uh, you know, the greatest competitors, but but they they all played a little part in just the constant uh, the, with the that feud lasted with Austin McMahon two or three years, and he had all his his cronies just trying to thwart Steve Austin. I, I re- when I was putting this list together, I remember. Uh, Austin had to run the gauntlet and beat all these guys to get to McMahon and all mm-hmm. this, and just just a lot of great uh, participants in it. And Vince had his own son Shane as a part of it. The Stooges, Pat Patterson, Jerry Briscoe, and then wrestling wise, he had uh, his bodyguard, my boy, the Big Boss Man. He had Tony's boy Test. Uh, later on, <laughs> later on, uh, the Big Show was added when he first came in from WCW. Triple H was a part of it, um, and of course, the cornerstone of the corporation was uh, the corporate champion himself, The Rock, who was really coming into his own at that time and having great matches with Austin. Uh, eventually, they did an angle where they had added the corp, the ministry to it too, and the Undertaker was a part of it. Uh, the Acolytes were part of it. And then, of course, who could forget Midian was a part of it also. And Mabel uh, with contacts, bad contacts, Viscera. So uh, just uh, kind of like you mentioned with the Heenan family, just, uh, just the big common goal is to just beat up Steve Austin and, and, and hold him down. And, and, and it would... Uh, you know, he'd have great matches with The Rock, but then uh, the the lesser guys down the card, uh, you know, there's a lot of comedic value there and a lot of shenanigans going on where Austin would just piss them off and get his hands on McMahon. And it was just a great time for wrestling. Um, just, you know, he just had a bunch of big guys going after him and, and the, the results were just just always fun to watch. So uh, that's what starts it out for me. Uh, Vince McMahon's corporation at number 10. Nice. Nice. I liked, um, yeah, I liked uh, the corporation as it grew, you know, just Vince having a, like, like you said, just like a whole team around him to just get at Austin at every turn. I liked when the rock joined in and I liked, I liked all that. It was yeah, it really gave the attitude era it's you know more gas onto the fire. So yeah. Good pick, the corporation. All right, let's move on to our number nines, boys. My number nine is the Heart Foundation. And when I say the Heart Foundation, I don't mean the tag team, Jim Danville, Nightheart, and Bret Hart. I mean the stable, the Heart Foundation which came together right around the birth of the Attitude Era. It consisted of uh, Bret Hart, Jim DeAnvil Neidhart, the British Bulldog, Owen Hart, and Brian Pillman. And, uh, yeah, it was put together as... Don't forget Bruce, you know, man. 
Oh, I'm sorry. How how can I forget Bruce? He threw the and drink. Uh, he threw the drink at Austin, which yeah. is bullshit. Sorry. Yeah. Wrestling the shadows. I reference. forgot. I forgot Bruce. I forgot. I forgot. Yeah, I forgot well, Bruce. Read- I forgot Smith. I forgot Keith. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you read Brett's book, Bruce wanted to be in the Hart Foundation in the worst possible way, but I digress. Yeah. Wow. But yeah, I mean, just that that stable in in that particular you know moment of time was really cool. You had, you know, they were starting to, the whole USA versus Canada thing, which was, you know, USA and Canada have never had any kind of rivalry, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> as you know. But just that to have that kind of thing going, you know, when you had the the Hart Foundation against you know, DX and Austin and all that other kind of stuff with Canada versus the U.S. It made for really great TV. And it really started to turn the tide. It had a lot to do with turning the tide uh, for WWE uh, when it came to the Monday Night Wars. You know, when, when that stuff started taking off, people it started getting people's attention and started uh, diverting viewers away from nitro a little bit. And yeah, the heart foundation stable had a lot to do with that. Then all the wrestlers involved were great performers. I mean, there, you know, there isn't a weak one in that bunch from all the guys I said, of course, Pillman couldn't really do much at that point. Cause he, you know, he, he, had, he had, he was injured. So he was more kind of like in a, you know, a, ancillary role but him still being part of that group was was big and yeah i just i love that heart foundation stable uh you know didn't didn't last too long you know after brett left following the montreal screw job that kind of broke broke things up obviously but for when they were there that heart foundation stable was pretty badass so yeah they're my number nine that's a good pick right there I like them. Why you didn't mention high energy or the new heart foundation beyond me, but it is what it is. Um, well, the pair, the parachute pants had a lot to do with that. <laughs> For my number nine, I go old school uh, group created back in 1979. Shout out to my boy, Richie, because he would have known that too, but I go with the fabulous three birds, uh, Michael Hayes, Harry Gordy, Buddy Roberts and eventually Jimmy Garvin, who joins the group eventually. But the whole concept of the team was to be pretty much like a three-man gang, um, come out, do whatever the hell they, they wanted to. And, um, I mean, to me, this was a stable that, even though there was three, eventually four, like I said, they they created their own rules. They were something different at that time. Back in you know the late 70s, early 80s, there wasn't anything like that. They created the Freebird rule, which to this day still lasts. Um, the free bird, free bird rule, which we mentioned previously, was they were tag team champions. It was a group of three, but anyone can, any any member of the group can defend the tag team titles at any match. Um, you know, you see the New Day was doing that recently. Uh, the the Jersey Triad was doing that. Demolition was doing that. You know, it's just like all these other groups still do it to this day, but it was created back then with the Freebirds, and what made them was the classic heel group that they had, but they had the perfect face group to go up against the perfect good guys. And that was the Von Eric family. When, uh, when Terry Gordy slams a steel cage on Kerry Von Eric's head, I mean, you want to talk about a riot. 
that that's that's just shows how amazing wrestling can be in people's lives. Um, you know, they, they not only had the rock and roll style of that versus the pure uh, purebred family of the Von Erics, but you know, the Von Erics were huge in Texas. The Freebirds were huge in, in Georgia, and here they come waving the Confederate flag at that time versus the Texas flag, and they made it just a huge, big deal. And I mean, ev- everybody was all involved in wrestling at that time, and the Freebirds had a huge, huge part in that. But they feuded with so many big teams. You know, you had the Legion of Doom that the, they would go up against at that time, the Road Warriors. Um, the Von Erics, like I mentioned, they, it was just, they were something different at that time. And, you know, this was before like the rock and wrestling that, you know, WWE, F, whatever it is that it was at that time that they created back then. But the free words were something different. They were the first kind of group to introduce rock music to their entrance, you know, with Bad Street USA that we've talked about in the past as well. But to me, they stand out and they'll always be an influential uh, game changer in that. And one of the funny things I thought of was do you remember when Michael Hayes became like a manager and he ended up uh, kind of managing the, the Hardy Boys? Yes, that yeah. was supposed to end up being kind of, yeah, Doc Hendricks. That was supposed to be kind of like the new version of the Freebirds. That was the WWE's version of that. They were supposed to end up being a, a, a Freebird style team, and it ended up being like, oh no, well this isn't working. We're going to throw you guys with Gangrel and put you as the new brood. But when I read about that, I thought that was pretty funny. I never saw that, but still something different uh, to think of when you think of that back in that time. But for me, my number nine, Fabulous Freebirds. Nice. Bad Street USA, man. That's right. Yeah. Good time. Yeah, there's there's uh, nothing wrong. Nothing wrong with the Freebirds, man. Can't, can't argue with that. All right, Adam, how about your number nine? Well, my number nine is is a kind of a modern day version of the the uh, free birds in the sense that it was a three man team too. Um, I, I'm kind of was in my casual viewing phase as a wrestling fan when these guys were big, but uh, so maybe you guys could help me out more in the background of them. But uh, I know that two of the three still wrestle for WWE. I'm talking about the Shield, uh, Dean Ambrose, Seth Rollins, and Roman Reigns. Um, three-man tag team um did my uh my research they were three-time tag team champions uh seth rounds was an nxt champ uh reigns and rollins won the icy title um so again uh whenever i would tune into wrestling around the time they were on they always seemed to be on raw whenever i'd switch it on just to see what was going on um again uh seems to me they were Pretty big deals, I know. Uh, some of them have main evented WrestleManias, right? Yeah, well, uh, yeah. Both of them, Rollins and Reigns. Yeah, they're they're two of the biggest guys. So again, uh, I haven't seen too much of them, but I know their impact was huge at the time. I guess they started out as adversaries for CM Punk, and they just grew from there. So again, two of those names still big today, and uh, you guys could probably. Uh, filled the the listeners in more with the feuds they had, but uh, obviously a lot of talent coming out of that group. Three man tag team, three man gang, just like Bob was talking about with the Freebirds, and won a lot of titles and main evented a lot of matches. So that's they they really fit my criteria for a more modern day uh, uh, strong stable. I know they're not together anymore, but 
but uh, they were a big part of the WWE in the 2010s, I know. Yeah, for for like a good year or two there, they were uh, they were very important. They were they were one of the top teams out there, if not the top team, until uh, until Seth Rollins turned on them and went to um, what they called the Authority, which was Triple H oh, and yeah. Stephanie McMahon. Um, but yeah, up until that point, they were they were really big. And yeah, Seth Rollins is still there. Roman Reigns is still there. John Moxley, uh, well, Dean Ambrose, who is now known as John Moxley in AEW, is no longer there. Gotcha. He's the AEW. He's the AEW he's world champion there. at this point. Yeah. Um. But uh, yeah. I mean, all th- all three are are very big players in modern professional wrestling. So, yeah, that's a good pick, man. The Shield. My, and it's a great apologies. TV show, too. Yeah. My apologies. I said that uh, Rollins actually uh, headlined at uh, WrestleMania, but he didn't. It's actually been Roman Reigns. He was the only one that actually did out of the group. Yeah. And he, he headlined, like, what? Like, four or five straight WrestleManias, too, didn't he? I, I believe so. I believe so. I, I know uh, he he did the one with Brock Lesnar. Um, and then before that, it was The Undertaker. And then he had Triple yeah. H, and then he had Brock Lesnar again, I think. So, yeah, he did four in a row, yeah. I believe. Yeah, that was when Vince and WWE were trying to shove Reigns down everybody's throat as, like, the next Cena. Um, but they, they finally have gotten their shit together as far as Reigns is concerned because he's they're pushing him now as a heel. And, and Heyman as manager. Yeah, yeah, with Heyman as his manager. And, and it's... Honestly, it's what they should have done. It's what, yeah, it's what they should have done with him from the beginning because he is he is really effective as a heel. It's probably some of the best stuff that WWE has going right now is the, the program they have with the with the heel Roman Reigns. It's really good. All right, well, we're on to our number eight, gentlemen. Uh, let's see here. My number eight is, I know it was mentioned by, uh, by Bob as them using the free bird rule a lot. I'm talking about the new day. The new day is my number eight. I mean, just look at them. They are probably of the modern era. The one of the most dominant tag teams, if not the most dominant tag team of the modern era. Um, and three, they're just three top-notch performers, man. Big E, great wrestler. Kofi Kingston, one of the most underrated guys in recent memory, I think. And Xavier Woods, you know, Xavier Woods is just entertaining as hell. And all three of them have such great chemistry together. I was really bummed out when they had the, the draft earlier this year and they split the new day up. They have Xavier Woods and Kofi Kingston over on Raw, and now um, Big E is on SmackDown, I believe, or it could be the other way around. But Big E, they're trying to push as a singles guy while the other two are a tag team. And it's a damn shame because, like I said, that the chemistry all three of them had together as, as a team was great. You know, they started out with this kind of, as a heel team, this kind of like, 
manufactured positivity thing. They had gospel singers go in and everything. You know, it didn't really work. But then they they kind of like, for whatever reason, Vince, who doesn't usually do this, he just kind of let them do their thing. And it evolved into what they are today, which is something that's really over with the crowd. They, they're hell, hell, just really entertaining and all three of them, great performers. And like I said, they have the, the tag team championship reigns to, to prove it. You know, I think they, they broke um, demolitions record for most consecutive days of having the, Mm -hmm. the tag belts. So yeah, new day, you know, that, one they're going down as one of the best tag teams um of all time and like i said since there's three of them that constitutes a stable so yeah one of the best stables of all time too so yeah my number eight is the new day i like it i like them like you said they are fun to watch um i always like biggie especially when i saw him for the from the beginning i always thought he could be somebody special and uh now, hopefully, he gets that chance that he deserves because I feel like he's been completely uh, underrated for a very long time. Uh, my number eight to me is, since we were talking about underrated, probably one of the most underrated stables when it comes to talent. Um, probably one of the best groups ever assembled talent-wise overall, and that is the Dangerous Alliance. Um, back in 1987 in the AWA, Paul Heyman, Polly Dangerously, as he was known, he created the Dangerous Alliance with uh, Adrian Adonis and the original Midnight Express, which was Randy Rose and Dennis Condry. Um, you know, he was doing that for a little bit of time, but then he went over to WCW in 1991, and that's when it really, really took over. At Halloween Havoc with uh, Adam's Boy, the Halloween Phantom came out. He destroyed... Uh, Tom Zink using a neck breaker. Then he hey, takes man. off the mask. <laughs> yeah. None other than ravishing Rick Rude. And um, that was it. The Dangerous Alliance was soon formed right after that. And again, how we talked about with the Heenan family, their goal was Hogan and Andre the Giant. The Dangerous Alliance's goal was Sting. Take out Sting, take out Sting. And that's what they tried doing at the Clash of the Champions. Remember, Back in 1991, I think it was Clash of the Champions 17. They go after Sting. He gets attacked in the back. He goes up against Rick Rude. Rick Rude ends up beating him. And then the very next day, you get the the creation of the Dangerous Alliance was just Rick Rude, beautiful Bobby Eaton. You get uh, Arn Anderson. You get Medusa. You get my favorite wrestler, Larry Zabisco, <laughs> and some guy named Steve Austin. <laughs> And, uh, you know, again, this is a dominating group. You had Anderson and uh, Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton were the tag champions. Steve Austin was a TV champ at that time. They're, they had an amazing War Games match against uh, Sting and Ricky Steamboat, Barry Windham, Dustin Rhodes, and Nikita Koloff. You know, that, that match was amazing. And then it's so much talent there. Like, Again, like you have all these veterans here with with Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton, and then you got this young up and comer and Steve Austin. You're like, yeah, let's just put them in there, let them learn from these guys, and and that's exactly what a stable should do. They should be dominating, which where they were, they were the champions. They had a certain goal in mind, take out Sting. But like I said, it had veterans here, it had rookies learning, and it was just fun. And they had probably like you mentioned Bobby Heenan, but 
one of the best mouthpieces ever is Paul Heyman. That guy could talk his ass off. And to me, that's what made the Paul, Paul Heyman character, the Paulie Dangerously character, was him being on the mic for these guys. And to me, like I said, one of the best stables ever. But unfortunately, which is WCW, they had no idea what the hell to do with them. They didn't know how to book it correctly, how to write the stories for them. And the group was just eventually disbanded. And that was it. But number eight for me, the Dangerous Alliance. Nice. Yeah, I always was a sucker for the Dangerous Alliance. I, I, you know, I I didn't really watch WCW all that much back then, like in the late '80s, early '90s. I was more, you know, just more of a WWF guy. But when I did, and I, you know, the Dangerous Alliance, I really, I really dug what they were doing, you know. And like you said, Paul E. Even back then, you know, just knowing how great of a talker he was, he's just so engaging. It's yeah, yeah. They dangerous alliance. That's a good pick. One of the reasons I would watch is because right before WCW would start, like right before the show would start, the show previous to it was uh, Captain Planet. So I'd always watch Captain Planet, and then that would go right into WCW. So that was definitely a good time. Yeah, nice. The power <laughs> of a good lead-in. Ah, <laughs> uh, times. Yeah, what was, I think, Roller Games was uh, WWF Superstars lead-in, so uh, I remember that. Oh, I, I yes, loved P- Roller Games, man. I loved ESPN Roller Games. Like, two, two, three months ago, ESPN was showing replays of it. I had to stop and watch it, and I was I was seven years old again. It was amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. T-Birds, bro, the T-Birds. <laughs> I think the Dangerous Alliance is a great pick. Um and again, with Paulie, it segues into my uh, number eight. Um, that would be the triple threat. Um, two versions of the triple threat. Talk about talent. Uh, of course, uh, at the head of the triple threat is Shane Douglas, the franchise, uh, Dean Malenko, and Chris Benoit. That's that's not a bad group of wrestlers there, wouldn't you say? Um, then, of course, Men- mm-hmm. uh, Malenko and Benoit went uh, to WCW, and uh, so they were replaced by the schlubs, uh, the schlub named Bam Bam Bigelow, just kidding, and Chris Candido and Lance Storm fighting over the third spot. Uh, just just uh, all of them first-class talent, all of them ECW legends, all the guys I mentioned. Um, they wore plenty of gold. Shane Douglas had three title reigns. Bam Bam had a title reign. Um, Malenko and Benoit were tag champs. Candido and Storm were tag champs. Uh, Malenko, Bigelow, and Douglas all had the TV title. Um, again, going back to you know, uh, pretty much anyone who was a face uh, in ECW, the Triple Threat went after, and more often than not, were on top. They go after Taz, RVD, Sabu. The list goes on. Um, and I, I, I don't know that it, it, as I go up my list, uh, maybe it'll make a little more sense. I really like, uh, when the group is, is strong, but it's just a few guys. Like if you have like 15 people in, in one stable, it kind of loses its luster for me a little bit. So it, it was, mm-hmm. it was a great name for, for a stable. just three badass wrestlers just wreaking havoc, winning titles and, uh, and putting on great matches and and carrying the show that uh, the triple threat was ECW's greatest stable and and it's a great uh, textbook definition of what a good stable is. So that's uh, that's my number eight, the Almighty Triple Threat. Cut the fucking music. 
Oh, Shane. Shane. Yeah, Shane's version of the mic drop, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Cut my fucking music. Oh, that's nice. All right, let's go into our number sevens, gentlemen. All right, our num- my number seven um, deals with wrestling through the ages. You know, you have your old, your young, your current, and that's the whole basis for my number seven. My number seven is evolution. Evolution, which was which consisted of, you know, you had the old guard, which was represented by Ric Flair. You had the current guard, I guess, at the time, which was represented by Triple H. The new guard, which was represented by Randy Orton. And, you know, you had to have the muscle in there somewhere, and that muscle was represented by Big Dave Batista. And Evolution was just, you know, for about a year or two there, they were just dominant. You know, they, they won the tag titles again. They, they won into, you know, triple H has always had the fucking world title with them, you know, and I, I believe Randy Orton maybe had the, the IC belt there for a little bit. And then he had the championship eventually, which is what caught, caused him his spot in evolution and ultimately the breakup of the group. But while they were together, man, evolution was, they were just a dynamite group. You know, you had, you had the best of all worlds. Like I said, you had Orton and Orton, Orton and Batista who were two newer guys who were, you know, Orton had, had, had a lot of uh, heat on him. Everybody, everybody thought he was going places and they rescued Batista out of, you know, that stupid Deacon Batista gimmick (laughs) that he was doing and actually gave him something worthwhile to do and ended up really saving his career. Um, yeah, Triple H, of course, who was, you know, Triple H. And then you had Ric Flair in there just to top it all off, man. The, the cherry on top of the Sunday being Ric Flair. And it was just everything they did was just cool as hell. You know, it was like it's kind of what what Impact tried to do, I think, with that that whole uh, what would they call it? The Millionaires Club, you know, all those old guys going to go up against kind of like whatever. But Evolution, in my opinion, just did everything to perfection while they were a group. You know, like I said, it was about a year or so where they were really big on top, and then of course, you know, they wanted to push Orton a little bit more, put this put the belt on him and they had to break up the group because of that. And eventually they, they ended up pushing Batista too to the moon as well. Um, yeah. So the group eventually ran its course, but while they were together, man, they were something. Yeah. Number seven evolution. That's a great pick. And, uh, what would one of our podcasts be without you and I having the same pick done? Just at hand least in hand. once a so damn show. Once a damn show. So here's your uh, here's your your number seven for me. And like you said, the past, the present, and the future. Uh, evolution. Uh, Rick, like you said, Ric Flair being the past, Triple H being the present, uh, Randy Orton, and what should have been Mark Jindrak, who uh, originally was supposed to be the last man, and then uh, Triple H said, "No, 
that doesn't look good. Uh, they did film no. the vignettes with him in it. And uh, they ended up kicking him out and replacing him with, like you said, Deke and Dave Batista. Um, and and that's where it took off from. And you forgot to mention the legendary entrance entrance music of Evolution by our friends from Motorhead. Um, that's right. So that's all always good. But yeah, like back at uh, 2002 when it all started off, Triple H is feuding uh, with uh, RVD for the title, and that's when Flair came out and gave uh, Triple H a sledgehammer, and he ended up winning and. He became the mouthpiece for for Triple H, even though he didn't need it. And then after that, he uh, Flair starts managing Batista, and he brings them both together. And here comes Randy Orton, and they help him uh, against Shawn Michaels, and they help him against Goldberg. I remember they put a, a bounty on Goldberg's head. Batista had been hurt for a while. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he comes out, and he takes the bounty out on Goldberg. And that's pretty much what uh, created the group together was uh, that bounty where Batista comes along and from there they they were they were everything again another group at that time that held every belt together at the same time like you said Orton was the IC champ Triple H was the the heavyweight champ but Flair and Batista were tag champs at that time and uh they 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 walked the walk they talked the talk they dressed the part they you know they they were dressed like uh suit and tie and you know just all fancy and um it was just like you said, the past, the present, and the future. Um, then when when Orton ended up being the youngest heavyweight champion, when he got that shot against Triple H, and that's what broke up the group. And then you know Triple H ends up turning on Flair, and Batista ended up winning. Uh, I think the Royal Rumble, and he goes after Triple H on a different show. That's what ended up breaking up the group, and they reunited a few times here and there. But like you said, at that time, during the early 2000s, that was probably one of the most dominating groups at that time was Evolution. And uh, that's my pick right there for number seven, sir. Yeah. Great mind sneak alike, sir. Yeah. Evolution was a hell of a group. All right, Adam, how about your number seven? At the risk of being repetitive, uh, my number seven is Evolution also. <laughs> really? Uh-huh. <laughs> triple shot of Evolution at number I, seven. Nice. Yes, indeed. Right there. Yes, there you go. I set that one up nice. So uh, you guys summed it up pretty well. So, yeah, as is, is, uh, uh, mentioned by both of you very well, Um I, I just, uh, when I remember Evolution, I think the thing I remember the most, as you both said, you know, Ric Flair established already a legend. Triple H was, uh, you know, the, uh, one of the top main eventers in the company at the time and, you know, was in the main event of almost every pay-per-view. But like Bob mentioned earlier in the show, uh, you know, you, you mix the young and the old and uh, Batista and Orton were up and coming performers at the time. And the, the thing that stands out the most to me was just how, how much Randy Orton, uh, for lack of a better word, evolved over that time. That was, I, I believe that was around the same time he was calling himself the legend killer and, and just, mm-hmm. uh, turning a lot of heads. And, uh, I remember a lot of us not liking him maybe so much when he first started out, but I mean, he, he really won me over in that group. He was just, he was just a killer heel and you could see what a talented wrestler he was. Um, and he's still today is, is still a top talent in the WWE and one of their best talents. Um, just a great worker and knows how to get the crowd into him. Batista's no slouch either. Just a, a great power guy. It's great power moves and 
um, dominating force. And yeah, the four of them together, uh, they ran things and, and yeah, the Bob mentioned R- RVD, Goldberg, you, you name the person they went up against. They just, they just laid waste to everyone they saw. And that's, and the crowd hated them for it for the most part. And so that's, uh, another mark of a great stable. You know, I think, you know, a lot of the time you had in the eighties, you had cowardly heels. They were kind of, you know, they would, they would, uh, talk the talk, but they wouldn't walk the walk when they'd fa- get in the ring with the face. But th- that was different back then. Those guys backed up all their smack talk. So yeah, I guess we all could agree that they were a great group together. <laughs> yeah. All good enough to be at our number seven positions. Yeah. Evolution, man. Awesome. Remember when Randy Orton hurt his shoulder and he used to do like those uh, CNN like headline reports where he'd yes. give you an update on the shoulder? I love that. That was amazing. <laughs> I thought that was amusing too. Yeah. I liked it as well. Oh, man. All right. Well, let's get into our number six, gentlemen. My number six, Bob has already mentioned it The Dangerous Alliance. Yeah. It was, yeah. I mean, that talk about a hell of a group. Like I mentioned, I never, I wasn't much of a WCW watcher back in that time, but when I Captain did, Planet. the Dangerous Alliance got a lot of my attention. And um, yeah, just like you said, Arn Anderson, Bobby Eaton, Stunning Steve Austin. You know, of course, yeah, Larry Zabisco, I guess. But it's in and Ravishing Recruit. You know it. Just that that amount of talent was undeniable, and and like you said, how it, how the Heenan family all focused on Hogan, the Dangerous Alliance all focused on Sting, and it was you had all you just had some of the best heels in the business, with the best talking manager in the business all combined. It was just great. I I loved. Loved the Dangerous Alliance. So yeah, they're they're my number six. It's a good pick, my friend. It's a good pick. Unfortunately, we're I already mentioned them, so we can't be the same on this one. But I will uh, mention the team that Adam mentioned for my number six, and that is uh, the Shield. Um, Roman Reigns, Seth Rollins, Dean Ambrose slash John Moxley when they came together in 2012. Remember they came out um, at the Survivor Series. CM Punk was up against Cena and Ryback, and they come out and they destroy Ryback. They're on through the table, and you're like, "Who the hell are these guys?" And um, immediately, they're they're forced to be reckoned with, and uh, they throw them in there against Cena and Sheamus and the Undertaker and Kane. They're feuding eventually with the Wyatt family. Uh, Evolution at that time had reunited and came back to feud with the um, with the Shield, but these guys were just dominant. Um, and again, this this time it was something different because there was these core young guys that were coming out. No veterans of the group. Um, everyone would see Reigns as a leader as sometimes, but there was never really a clear leader. You know, you had Ambrose who was like the grit. He was the, the talker of the group. You had Rollins who was the high flyer, the grappler. And, and Roman Reigns is just your power guy. But uh, they go into Extreme Rules pay-per-view. And Ambrose becomes the the U.S. champ, and then Rollins and Reigns become the tag champ. So now all of them have belts at that time. And then uh, they're feuding with Triple H and his group at that time. Uh, I think it was the Authority, and that's when Rollins ends up turning, and he joins the Authority. 
and that's kind of disbanded the group. But eventually they came back together and um, just they've broken up a few times, come back together, broken up, come back together. But every time they would come back together, there would always be a huge, ginormous pop for the shield. And I'll, I'll always remember um, the money in the bank pay-per-view. It was, I believe, Reigns was a champ. He lost to Rollins that night. And then Ambrose comes in and cashes in the money in the bank. So all three of them were pretty much the heavyweight champion that night, which uh, was kind of cool. I think that was in 2019 that they all did that. But um, just they were a fun group. They would come through the uh, the crowd. They were wearing that like uh, the gear that, you know, with the, the that Roman Reigns would still wear for a long time. But they were just badasses, you know, uh, the hounds of hell, I think they called them when they would come out and just no nonsense let's take care of business whoop some ass and you know put the team first and do whatever we have to do to get the victory and that's what the shield was and they were fun to watch so for me they were my number six the shield nice nice yeah can't say more about the shield than i already had when adam picked them yeah the shield undeniable all right adam how about your number six my number six is mentioned by Tony earlier. Um, again, focusing more on current, uh, that's the new day. Um, again, I, uh, I'm more of a casual wrestling viewer these, these days, but I, I will, uh, turn it on, uh, you know, sometimes when I'm flipping channels and, uh, I, I stopped on SmackDown a few weeks ago and, uh, my daughter knows I'm a big wrestling fan, so uh, she's like, leave it here. I want to watch this. So the New Day was actually wrestling in the match, and I, I had known of uh, Kofi Kingston. Uh, I'd, I'd seen him wrestle quite a few times, and uh, I believe it was Kingston and Woods in a tag match, but Big E was also there. And, yeah, they, they put on a great match, and, and I could tell how over they were with the fans, and I know they're one of the most over teams in WWE history. As Tony mentioned, they beat Demolition's record. That that automatically earns my respect. And, again, just three great workers. Uh, crowd really loves them. Uh, my daughter was impressed with all the moves they did. Uh, she's she's only eight, so she she watches wrestling and goes, oh, wow, that, that must have hurt and stuff like that. So it's kind of fun <laughs> to see her watch. But 10-time uh, ten, ten tag champions, uh Doing my research, uh, Kofi Kingston was a world champion at one time, too. So great pedigree, lots of titles, and lots of exciting wrestling. Everything I've ever seen from them. So as Tony mentioned, uh, way over with the fans. Big draw. So uh, New Day checks in at uh, number six for me. All right, so let's get into our top fives, gentlemen. My number five... Has to go to Degeneration X. Now, to be honest with you, I was never that big of a DX fan. You know, I, I just I just wasn't. I didn't really I wasn't like, you know, doing the suck it chance and all that other kind of stuff. I, I just they weren't really they weren't my stable. They weren't my team, but I can't deny how important they were to not only the attitude era, but to just wrestling in general, you know, it was, it was a signal of what wrestling was about to become and where it was going. And yeah, it was just all the ingredients were there, man. You had, you had HBK, triple H China and Rick rude there at the beginning. Um, and you know, eventually it evolves 
Triple H, you know, Rick Rude leaves. Also, tri- HBK has his last match with um with with uh, Austin there, and then he's gone for like four years. And when it comes back, it's Triple H and China, but they're also joined by X Pac and the New Age Outlaws for a new iteration of DX. And it's like I said, they were never my cup of tea, but I did appreciate what they did. I did appreciate the impact they had, you know, like just them storming the the WCW Nitro, you know, on the tank. That was, you know, stuff like that was was ballsy. And that's what you got with DX. You got like a group of a group of troublemakers who just didn't give a shit about who they were pissing off. And that's, that's kind of what fans wanted and WWE gave it to them in spades. So yeah, DX is my number five. Nice. That kind of segues into my number five. When you're talking about a group that uh, just came out of nowhere um, and just had zero respect for authority and did whatever it is that they wanted to do. And uh, with regards to that, I take you to Japan for number five, and that's the Bullet Club, sir. The mm-hmm. uh, the Bullet was formed in uh, 2013 by Prince David, who we all know now is uh, Finn Balor. Him and uh, Carl Anderson, Bad Luck Fale, and Tamatanga, best friends, got together and uh, decided to do their own thing and be the uh, the villainous foreigners, the gaijins out there in, um, in Japan. And Japan is used to traditional old-school style wrestling matches, respect, and that's what Japan is based on. They're not used to the American um, matches of uh, – outside interference or uh, referee bumps or, you know, just lack of respect. And that's what the Bullet Club brought. Um, they came out and they did that. And then obviously you have the uh, <clears throat> the Young Bucks come about and, you know, they're, they're a part of that as well. And New Japan Wrestling, which were the, the Bullet Club was a part of, has eight championships overall, eight. At one time, the Bullet Club held all eight titles. You want to talk about dominance? That was that. Uh, Ring of Honor holds five titles. The Bullet Club had all five titles at one time. That's just utter dominance of a stable. That's what we talked about earlier. I mean, we've mentioned some of these other groups like Evolution Shield. They all had titles at the same time. Each member had it, but the, the Bullet Club did that in spades. And then when one person left, they were replaced by someone possibly even stronger. Finn Balor left for for the WWE. Who do they replace him with? AJ Styles. AJ Styles becomes the leader of the Bullet Club. Then over time, Bullet, uh, AJ Styles, Carl Anderson, um, Luke Gallows, they all end up leaving for the WWE as well. Who does he get replaced with? Kenny Omega. It's just like, it just keeps getting better and better and better. And you can't yeah. even fathom that. It just was happening. But they they were just a dominating group, still are. I mean, now I think uh, Jay White is their leader. Um, they also have brought in a few Japanese wrestlers to be a part of the Bullet Club, and they're still out there doing their thing. But um, to me, yeah, just one hell of a dominating stable, and that's the uh, the Bullet Club, number five, sir. 
Nice. Yeah, man. For a while there, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing a Bullet Club t-shirt, man. It was kind of like the NWO back in their heyday. It was just yeah. omnipresent. Yeah. I have one. Yeah, it's a good pick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember that uh, that Ring of Honor show we went to at the Odeum. I mean, I did. I hadn't seen that many Bullet Club shirts in one spot in my life. It was... It seemed like nine out of every ten fans had a Bullet Club shirt on. It was awesome. But that just shows but, how how crazy popular they were when they announced Kenny Omega for that Ring of Honor show. That show sold out in three minutes. All they had to do yeah. was put Kenny Omega. They didn't put anybody else. They put Kenny Omega's name on there. Sold out in three minutes. Yeah, yeah, and, and that, I mean, that's on the heels of long. Yeah. It was on the heels of those matches he had with Okada, you know, it was just, he was, it was just no joke. If you were into wrestling, if you were into the independent scene or Ring of Honor and knew who Kenny Omega was, you wanted to see him live, you know, and and it's still, that's still, that, you know, that's, that's still kind of the case, you know, Kenny Omega in AEW, I mean, I, I, if I see Kenny Omega in a match, I stop what I'm doing and watch that match because chances are it's going to be a kick-ass match. So, yeah. And now they're, now they're in AEW, they're starting to bring him back to his original, like, uh, cleaner gimmick, which hopefully the takes cleaner, off. Yeah. That, that, that's my favorite, Kenny Omega. When that does happen, it's going to be yeah. it's going to be amazing. Awesome. All right, Adam, how about your number five? Well, I'm going to have to turn the Wayback Machine uh, on. Uh, you mentioned them earlier, Tony, uh, the Heenan family. Um, I, of course, grew up knowing the WWF version, as you mentioned earlier. But, yeah, uh, prior to that, the AWA, uh, uh, lots going on with the Heenan family, too. Uh, Nick Bockwinkle, four-time champion. Stan Hansen, the original Blackjacks, not Bradshaw and Barry Windham, the original Blackjacks. Um um, Heenan managed five-time AWA tag champions. Then, as you mentioned, goes to the WWF, and it's like a who's who list of guys that Heenan managed over the years. So just Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer. Andre the Giant, he managed Ric Flair for a while, Kurt Henning, Rick Rude, Harley Race, King Kong Bundy, and Mr. Vanilla as fuck himself, Terry Taylor. <laughs> was a member of the Heenan family for a short time. I had to work that in there for you. Um, just Heenan was the premier wrestling manager. Um, I think a lot of people uh, remember, too, just what a great commentator he was, too. He was just so funny on commentary. But before that, he was a tremendous manager and just you know, a laundry list of, of, uh, of great performers and legends. And, again, as we've been uh, saying all through the show, pretty much most of those guys were targeted to go after Hulk Hogan and and take his title away from him. And and some great matches were were had. You know, Andre the Giant at WrestleMania three. Why the WWF never really booked the pay per view with Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan is beyond me. Because I did see him wrestle at a house show at that time, which would have been I guess ninety one or ninety two. The building was practically shaking before they even locked up. The place was electric uh, because that was the dream match everyone wanted to see. And Bobby Heaton was at ringside for that. And again, other great talents like uh, Kurt Henning and Rick Rude, who didn't win the world title, but I mean, they were, they worked so hard and were great performers. 
uh, Harley race was past his prime at the time, but still a great competitor. Just uh, every, oh, it seemed like almost every great heel that went through the WWF in the late eighties, early nineties was managed by Bobby Heenan. And he he just enhanced it further with it, with the work he did outside the ring and, and uh, helping get his talent over. Even if, even if they didn't need, not all those guys needed a mouthpiece, but I mean, he got them that much more over. So I have a lot of love for Bobby Heenan and the Heenan family. Uh, they check in at number five on my list. Nice. Did you mention Hercules Hernandez? Because he was a part of that group too. I somehow, I somehow forgot about Hercules. There, here's a quick piece of trivia. Do you remember what uh, Gorilla Monsoon's nickname for Power and Glory was? Speaking of Hercules, what's that? Herc and Jerk. <laughs> Hercules was obviously Herc, and Paul Roma was Jerk. I, I guess Gorilla didn't like Paul Roma very much. Poor Paul Roma. I don't think a lot of people like Paul Roma very much. Uh, didn't he get fired for yeah. fighting somebody or something backstage? No, he he didn't. He didn't in WCW. He got fired because he didn't want to do the job to Alex Wright. Well, that's understandable, though. Yeah. I know Bob agrees with me on that. <laughs> I, mentioned I wouldn't want to do a job that guy either. <laughs> Duggan did the same thing. Man. Come on. Yeah, Duggan too. Duggan yeah, well, too. Dug- Duggan was Hogan's friend, that, so he had that going for him. Roma, I don't think, was Hogan's Everybody. friend. All right. Let's move on to our top fours, gentlemen. My number four is an offshoot of what Bob presented earlier. My number four is the Elite, which is uh, basically the power trust of AEW at the moment. The members of the Elite are Kenny Omega, the Young Bucks, and Cody Rhodes. Up until recently, Hangman Page was in that group, but uh, I don't don't believe he's in that group any longer. Uh, But yeah, the Elite, they are... um, you know, one of some of the more over wrestlers right now in wrestling. Of course, like I said, they're the power trust of AEW, and you know that they have a very big YouTube presence and social media presence as well. Uh, Being the Elite is a very popular YouTube show that kind of got kind of got them over and grew their fan base when uh back when they were still in New Japan. So. Yeah, the elite. Um, like I said, the the talents there, the chemistry's there. Um, you know they they have great matches together. Like you know the what was it? The match inside the empty football field from earlier this year was great mm-hmm. when they went up against uh, Chris Jericho in the inner circle. You know all of that is just awesome, and they're very innovative. They're very you know, original and they have their, their sights set uh, with AEW as a whole of not only just being a competitor for WWE, but just being top notch wrestling altogether, not just a competitor, but somebody who can actually make a run for the top rung and they're doing a great job. So yeah, my number four is the elite. That's a good one, sir. That's a good one. Um, my number four has already been mentioned by Tony. 
Um, I know Adam's a huge fan, so we might see him later. But for me, number four is the Hart Foundation. Again, as you mentioned them, uh, Bret Hart, Owen Hart, uh, Jim DeAnvil, Nightheart, Davy Boy Smith, and Brian Pillman. Um, not a weak member, weak link in that group at all. Um, after WrestleMania 13, where the double turn happened with Stone Cold Steve Austin and Bret Hart uh, during that match, uh, that's when Bret Hart became the anti-American uh, pro-Canadian, and Canada was better than the United States. But from that point forward, you want to see how dominating a stable can be. You watch a Raw episode where the Hart Foundation goes to Canada. And if you ever want to hear a pop, like a wrestling pop, when the, when that music plays for the Hart Foundation in Canada, that place goes apeshit. That is the dominance of a stable, and that's what the Hart Foundation had. Again, Bret Hart, um, it's, it's rare for the WWE to have that at that time. Bret Hart was a champ. Owen Hart and um, Davey Boy Smith, tag champs. Uh, I think Davey Boy Smith was uh, the European champ, or maybe Owen was, and one of them was the Intercontinental champ. They all had they all, they all had belts. Yeah, Bulldog um, they were was all the champ- first ever European champion. Okay. Yeah, Bulldog Beating was. Owen and, I mean, <laughs> they uh, they they were just dominating it, and and they they helped make Austin. I think because at that time, you know, Austin was. Uh, he had that match with Bret Hart at WrestleMania and that he didn't give up and he passed out uh, with your favorite referee, uh, Ken Shamrock in there, Tony. And um, <laughs> from that point on, like, like I said, these guys, they, they had the attitude, they had the arrogance um, and, and they were just a great stable all together, all together around um, the feuds that they had with DX, like you said, and with Austin. Um, it, it was just, they were fantastic at that time. And for me, that's why I put the Hard Foundation as number four on my list. Nice. Yeah, I can't argue with that. All right, Adam, how about your number four? Uh, my number four is mentioned by you too, Tony. Um, and I agree uh, with what you're saying. Um, individually, most of these guys weren't my favorites. But as a unit, they definitely made their mark and their impact. I'm talking about DX. Um the first iteration of DX was, of course, my favorite because I'm a big Rick Rude mark. So the fact he was he was hanging around, basically Triple H just said in interviews, they just said, hey, Rick, you want to be in this group? He's like, oh, okay. That's basically how that happened. But, uh, <laughs> of course, China and uh, Triple H uh, came into the business together, and uh, Triple H was a member of the Click and uh, the infamous Curtain Call. You know, two of the guys in the Click went to WCW and – Michaels hung around and Triple H hung around and you know I I've read Michael's book. Triple H is pretty much the only friend he had and uh when Vince was trying to sell him as kind of a Hogan like figure, you know, kissing babies and and being a goody two shoes, uh, you know, I just Shawn Michaels has always been talented. He just never really but when he was a face, he just never did it for me when he was doing all that stuff and so he seemed to get tired of that and he basically said him and triple h just acted like themselves and it got him over i mean you know i know a lot of critics of dx said it was an nwo ripoff and i guess i could see that to a point but they they kind of took what the nwo did and and made it even more uh 
cutting edge and even more in your face with all their antics and things they did to rile the fans up. And you guys both mentioned them feuding with the Hart Foundation, just, you know, that whole real life feud with Bret Hart and mocking him and, and uh, calling him a dinosaur, basically uh, just great, great heel team. Um, and then once Michaels went on the shelf, they brought in X-Pac and the, and the outlaws. And again, like, you know, some of us are not the biggest fans of Billy Gunn. I know on this show, I'm include myself <laughs> in that in X-Pac. Uh, but, but again, uh, Tony mentioned the, uh, the invasions and going to, you know, the Turner and going to the arena and all that. I mean, Vince Russo, I, he could take all the credit he wants, but I know he had not, not too much to do with that. Um, you know, it's just uh, I have a lot of respect for those guys just, you know, knowing full well what they were about to do, that if they ever got shit canned from WWF, WCW would not hire them for all the stuff they did and <laughs> said about them. So I really uh, respected how cutting edge it was. I mean, they just made everything look so like it was much more real reality based and not and not. Storyline. It was just like that's probably what those guys thought backstage, and they put it on camera. So, um, and of course, like I said, I'm a big fan of the Michaels and Triple H team. China was a very big contributor, also, in at the beginning of the group and and throughout. So, I got to give them their due. Just uh, a lot of titles that they won between them too. So again, individually not my favorite wrestlers, but no one can deny the impact they had on WWE and wrestling history. So DX is my number four. Nice. Yep. Like I said, I I totally concur with what you're saying. Yeah, like I said, individually, not all my favorites, but they did have quite a bit of impact on wrestling. So yeah, DX. All right, we are now into our top threes, gentlemen. My number three, um, Bob has already mentioned, and they're an offshoot, or not an offshoot, but basically the originators from my number four, and that is the Bullet Club. Um, yeah, Bullet Club, like like Bob said, they were just something that that the wrestling fan at large kind of needed when they were around they became the they became the cool thing um you know like you said prince devitt uh carl anderson tamatanga and bad luck Fale. those are your founding fathers and you've had new members coming in and out you know in between all of that like you know the the Young Bucks and like Bob said, AJ Styles and Kenny Omega. And, you know, like I said, what I mentioned, the elite is my number four. All of those guys, you know, came from the Bullet Club. And, you know, if you're, you know, looking at the Bullet Club, they, of course, you know, they, they owe a lot of their image and existence to the NWO. But to me, there were so Technically, talent-wise, the way they, they were booked, the way they carried themselves, a lot more effective than the NWO. Um, you know, they never had as much of a mainstream impact as the NWO did as far as, like, becoming household names. 
but within the wrestling community itself, that I think they were every bit as impactful mm-hmm. as uh, as the NWO. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, from everything from T-shirts to you know merch, you know, toys, and just there because of the Bullet Club, there was now more eyes than ever that cast a gaze over at New Japan and it be, it get it, it it lent itself to the reestablishing of New Japan as a player in the professional wrestling world as well. They had a lot a lot of that had to do with the Bullet Club. And yeah, as far as a modern as far as a modern stable and and their huge impact on the wrestling world you know, I don't think there's a stable out there in the last 10 or 15 years that has had as much of an impact as the Bullet Club. And that's why they're my number three. Yeah, they're they're very good. Um, and they're, they're still strong and running strong, like, like we both mentioned. But um, it's very hard to come up with another group like this that has had the impact that they had most recently. Uh, so that's that's definitely a great choice. My uh, my number three was just mentioned by Adam, and that's the Generation X as well. And I know you mentioned it early, too, Tone. Um, DX at that time, again, you know, it could have been some people, like you said, uh, kind of a ripoff of the NWO. But DX was different. Uh, they they pushed the envelope. They did, they, they did whatever the hell they wanted, no matter how provocative it was. And, uh, you know, you, the crotch chops and the suck it. And, you know, you're like, well, what the hell is that? You know, like, where, where's that coming from? Um, like I think we mentioned it before, but even when you would hear their theme music right from the beginning, the, um, the, are you ready? And the, the break it down and all that stuff. I was like, holy shit, that sounds like Rage Against the Machine. Like I would get all excited thinking it was them, but, um, yeah, when they came about and Triple H and Shawn Michaels were, were together at the beginning and then Michaels left and here comes X-Pac and the new age outlaws with China and, you know. The, you, you guys mentioned the, the the feuding with Austin and everything that they did and the invading of WCW. But one of the things that always sticks out to me is uh, the parody of the Nation of Domination that they nah. did. Um, <laughs> it was just like, holy crap. Like X-Pac, I think, was Mark Henry. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, Road Dog, I think, was D'Lo Brown. And just like yep. the, the parody of D-Lo. it was, was ab- absolutely fantastic. And... Um, it's just that that was another one. Like the, the feud that they had with the nation of domination was, was, was fun. And then at, at the end, when they decide to break it up, you know, China turns on triple H and she joins Vince's corporation. And then I, I like how afterwards that anyone who would leave the group would, would, you know, attack X-Pac. I think uh, triple H did it at WrestleMania. He turned on X-Pac and then eventually Billy guns like, ah, screw it. I'm going to leave DX. So he turns on X-Pac, which I thought was funny because I always hated X-Pac, but I guess the DX was, DX was something different. Um, they rocked it. They pushed the envelope. They did whatever the hell they wanted to. They were funny. Some of the parodies that they did, some of the um, you know vignettes that they did backstage were hilarious with Shawn Michaels and Triple H and Rick Rude. And I think there's one where they're like uh, they're, they're trying not to curse, but they keep cursing and they're just getting beeped out every every five seconds. Yes. That one was pretty funny. My brother was, and I uh, used to rehearse that together. Yeah, we do that all the time. <laughs> it, it, was, it was fantastic but they they were different and uh for me that's why i put them up at number three the generation x 
Awesome. Yeah, DX, man, had an impact, that's for sure. All right, Adam, how about your number three? Now, me and Bob's uh, four and three were pretty much flip-flopped. Uh, as he mentioned, I have a huge, huge mark for the Heart Foundation. They're my number three. Um, nice. I am probably the biggest fan of the, of the Canada-U.S. angle. I just thought that was genius. And I, I still have a raw, uh, here, here's me in the Wayback Machine. I, I still have a working VCR, and I have old raws on VHS, and one of my most prized ones is where the yeah, like Bob mentioned, they were in Canada. They were, they challenged three U.S. guys to a flag match, and just Michaels came out to do an interview. It wasn't even wrestling, and uh, just the amount of heat he got just for walking out, and and, and all mm-hmm. this, uh, the, the way he just the way Michaels gave it back to him, just tremendous. And and yeah, you would think that you know the Lord Himself came out whenever Bret Hart, you know. <laughs> came out to the ring. I mean, they just, the, the people just ate it up. I also have the Canadian stampede pay-per-view where I think it was a 10 man tag where all the hearts thought, I think it was Austin, LOD, Goldust, and Shamrock, uh, everyone's favorite. And uh, the crowd heat that match was ridiculous. Like Brett would throw a punch, huge cheer. Austin would throw a punch. Boo. And just, uh, I don't think I've ever seen a crowd so into it. It like all the Raws, they would talk to, especially the Canadian fans backstage, and, and they legitimately just did not like United States people or wrestling I, I, fans. They were just, you could tell they were sincere about it. it. Was it was it was comical? I mean, I just I couldn't get enough. And you know, Brett was kind of a squeaky clean heel for a very long time when he first became a single, and they decided to turn him heel. And I, he was a great heel. He was just very low key and very bitter and complaining all the time. And in the midst of it all, he he had been feuding with his brother all those years, brought brought him and his brother-in-law, Davey Boy, back together. And they just went out and just wrestled classic match after classic match with with just about anybody. Those three could get a good match out of anyone. They were all in their prime. Then you had Jim Neidhart, who was not the greatest worker, but he's still a great guy to have around. He's powerhouse, good on the mic, just like he was good in the kind of cleanup bodyguard role, uh, running interference on the outside. And, and despite the fact Pillman was kind of on his last legs, I mean, everyone knows how brilliant Pillman was on the mic and he could get heat of his own. Just five great personalities. The, as Bob mentioned, they, they held a lot of titles in a short amount of time. Um, so just, uh, that's where wrestling really picked up for me. I was at the Bret Hart, Boston match at WrestleMania 13, and it was uh, talk about great crowd participation. I you literally saw Bret Hart turn in the middle of that match, and it just jump started a, a great run for him and his family. So I just wish it would have lasted longer, but history is history. So uh, I thought that was a good way for Bret Hart to end his WWF career. Just wish it would have lasted a little longer. So it's uh, my Heart Foundation love fest for today. Uh, they're my number three. <laughs> the Canadian Stampede match wasn't that the one where at the end when when they won like doesn't all the Hart family come into the ring afterwards? Yep, Stu and Helen included. I'm sure Lawler had a Correct, couple right? good zingers about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll always remember. that was a fantastic match, by the way. Yeah, I have that on VHS as well. It's a good. It's a good one. 
All right. Well, let's get into our number twos, gentlemen. I'll start. My number two is the new, 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 new world order. The NWO. Now, I'll have to preface this. Like DX, I was never a huge fan of the NWO. And as time went on, and they pretty much had like 65% of WCW's roster as a member, it got even worse. But that being said, I can't I can't really discount or deny the amount of impact that the NWO had on wrestling, especially as far as the mainstream is concerned and how it brought eyes back to professional wrestling back in the mid to late nineties. Um, of course, you know, the NWO started as the outsiders, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash recruiting Hulk Hogan into, uh, into their ranks. He was the mystery man at bash at the beach. What was that? 96. I want to say. Yes. Bash mm -hmm. the, yeah. Bash at the beach. 96. He was the surprise uh, third man as far as, far as uh, you know, they were going on and on about a, a, a third man was going to join the ranks. They, they wouldn't, you know, clue off who it was. It was supposed to be Sting from all intents and purposes from what I've heard. But you know, at the end, you know, they decided, you know, Hogan was going to be the guy because nobody would see that coming. And it definitely didn't because there was real, it was a real shock to the professional wrestling system when it was, um, when it turned out to be Hulk Hogan, who was the one who, uh, who went heel and, um, and joined the, uh, the outsiders. And that eventually turns into the new world order of wrestling. He says it right there in the ring as fans are throwing garbage into the ring at the end of uh at the end of uh Bash of the Beach ninety six. They can call it the new world order of wrestling. And that's Brother. exactly who they became. And it just <laughs> seemed like every week on <laughs> every week on Nitro after that they would recruit a new member into their ranks. You know, Macho Man came in, um Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase got in there. Um who else was an early member of the giant they recruited. And Six. like I said, eventually almost every single fucking member of the WCW roster was a member of the world new world order at one point to the, to the point that there were NWO subgroups, you know, there was the wolf pack, there was the LWO, there was, you know, it, it just got way out of hand at, at one, at, at one point And it just became comical. And, but that doesn't discount the original NWO, how revolutionary they were and how much of an impact they had. And like I said, with the Bullet Club, with their, their t-shirts and everything, there'd be no Bullet Club if there wasn't an NWO. I mean, mm -hmm. basically, you know, the, the Bullet Club took a lot of things, especially the two sweet hand gesture thing that they do. You know, they, they took that straight from the NWO. And like I said, it was so revolutionary at the time, had made such a big impact that while I was never a huge fan, 
I have to put them at my number two because that's just what history dictates. Yeah. The New World Order, the NWO, for life at my number two. And they're right there at my number two as well, dude. The uh yeah. the NWO the NWO gimmick, um, like you said, where at that time, you know, the internet presence wasn't that big as to how it is now. So when Scott Hall comes out in the middle of a match, Mike Enos, I think, was wrestling or someone like that, and he comes out and, and, and just destroys these guys, or they leave, I believe, because he comes in and, and he gets on the mic. You're like, what the hell is Scott Hall doing there? You know? And then he's teasing someone else come coming in, someone bigger as Sting slaps him in the face. And next thing you know, here comes Kevin Nash. And you're like, holy shit, what the hell's going on? And, and the way that they played the gimmick perfectly, I remember reading Bischoff's book. He he said he had seen it out in Japan. This happened. They had like an invasion angle going on. So the way that they made it play off was here's guys that should still be on their contract with the WWE, but no one really knew that they were gone. And they're just showing up. And you wanted to keep seeing who was that next person that was coming. So that like when they they kept teasing that third person, that third person, you had to be watching Bash at the Beach 96 to be like, what the hell's going on? So yeah, that that match when when they ran up against uh, Luger and and Sting and Macho Man Randy Savage, and I, I think they jumped Luger in the middle of it or like before the hand, and he wasn't even a part of the match basically, uh, because he's your boy. But um when Hogan, <laughs> yeah. comes out, Hogan comes out and he drops that leg drop on Savage, you're like, holy shit, like, what the hell just happened? Like, and, and, and what amazes me is the way Hogan looks when he comes out because he looked like he lost 100 pounds. You're like, what the hell happened to Hogan? You know, <laughs> but when he comes out, stop, he it, stopped it, doing roids. That's what he did. He, no, he all, all he did was take vitamins to and say his prayers, but yeah, um, yeah, I believed in himself. They, they, they were it, they were something different they they um it, it was just completely something different that you had never seen before when they took over and like you said every week you wanted to watch and see who the NWO was bringing next all of a sudden they they you're watching nitro and hey there's ted dibiase and he's the benefactor of the group and then you know they they bring the the big show over who at that time was the giant and you're like oh man now now they got the muscle in the group um and, you know, the Outsiders were the tag champ. Hogan was the main champ. Um, th- then you bring in uh, your your boy Virgil. He was in there in the group. Uh, they, paid, they paid off Nick Patrick, who was the referee. You know, how many times would you hear the referee being paid off and being a part of the group? You never heard that. Um, you know, and then, like I said, I had to mention. And then they. And then they got Bischoff in there, who was the boss. So there yeah, you go. Yeah, then they got Bischoff in there, and there was the boss. And, like, they were supposed to be their own entity. I think um, they, they had a, a Saturday night show that they would show, too. And, like, they would have uh, an, an one hour of just NWO where the NWO wrestlers would wrestle jobbers during the match. And, like, they had their own show at that time. But it was so, so popular and got wrestling so crazy at that time that at that time, WWE was untouchable. And as, as everyone talks about those 83 weeks where the NWO and WCW took over, that was that. That feud that they had with Sting, remember, it was the War Games match where um, everyone kept thinking that Sting was going to be part of the NWO. He was going to be the next one to jump, the next one to jump. And uh, he comes out to help. It's Luger and Arn Anderson and Flair. 
And here comes Sting, and he helps fight off the NWO, and he, he tells the group, hey, you know what, I told you I was here for you guys, but then he leaves. And then Sting's gone for like 15 months. You're like, where the hell Sting? And he becomes a Crow character, and then he comes out and he feuds with the NWO. That was another must-watch TV. Like, what the hell Sting going to do now? But because of the NWO, they had that perfect heel to go or face to go up against, and it was just fantastic TV to watch. And it was just like they, they, were, they were something special at that time. And then when they went away – and then they came to WWE, and again, it wasn't all 700 members of the NWO like you had mentioned. That's when I stopped getting interested in them because everyone in the world was an NWO member. But when it was Hogan, Hall, and Nash again, and, and you bring them over to Raw, and Hogan and The Rock have that feud. Like, now all of a sudden you're all interested in the, in the NWO again. It's just like, this is amazing. But... um. For me, they're my number two. But the one thing I thought was uh, was pretty interesting with the, the wrestling trivia is which wrestler came up with the actual NWO logo, the actual letters in the white and the black. Who, what, what wrestler came up with that? I'm going to guess Scott Hall. Negative, sir. No. Okay. I'm, I'm just going to go way out of left field and say Conan. It was Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. Oh, my. That came really? Not with logo. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yep. And then the one that came up with uh, NWO for life, for life, that was your boy Terry Taylor, actually. Vanilla as fuck, huh? Nice. <laughs> Terry Taylor came up with that logo. But there you go. There's your wrestling trivia for today. That's great. Awesome. All right, Adam, how about your number two? Well, at the risk of being repetitive, number two for me is the NWO also. Um, I'm wondering if Terry Taylor and uh, Paul Orndorff got, uh, you know, uh, some sort of status for coming up with that stuff. They should have been members, too. I thought so, I did too. not know that. Paul Orndorff had an interesting career. You know, he uh, he fought Vader in the locker room and uh, came up with the logo and main evented WrestleMania one. That's a pretty good career. So um, back to then the mustache, of course. Um, the grand total I uh, looked it up: sixty two members of the NWO in all from the inception in nineteen ninety six to I think about two thousand three when it dissolved in WWE. Um, but uh, as you both mentioned very well uh, just such a cutting edge gimmick for its time Um, again it it added an air of realism because let's face it uh, it it was cartoon central before on on both sides before that angle started you had Hogan wrestling the dungeon of doom uh, you know uh, on WCW side and then you had Clowns and cowboys and dumps, uh, you know, garbage man and and every profession under the sun and a few decent wrestlers on the WWF side and and uh, Eric Bischoff uh, just got a great idea, realistic idea, and uh, running as as Bob mentioned the outsiders and and adding Hogan to the group and just being completely counterculture and, and doing a whole takeover angle. One of one thing I remember about the NWO uh, just randomly turning the show on and they were uh, in the back area of wherever the arena was and uh, WCW guys are coming after him and Ray Mysterio hops off, a, off a, a trailer, trip. I believe. And Kevin Nash catches him and lawn darts him. And I'm like, 
wow. I mean, I was watching wrestling at the time, but I wasn't as into it for the reasons I just mentioned. I'm like, whoa, what is this? And then I think they beat up Arn Anderson with a baseball bat. And it's like, wow, this is like awesome. This is like realistic fighting stuff and, and whatnot. And so that, that really got my attention. So again, they, uh, they hit on a great idea and just changed the industry. Um, you know, again, we're talking about a group that just changes things up around the then WO, uh, was the focus of WCW for a couple of years until they kind of ran it into the ground. But uh, that initial oomph it gave the show, I mean, I never would, I think if not for the NWO, WCW would probably never have been the number one promotion. It's good as some of their talent was. They just, uh, NWO gave them the mainstream attention that they, that they really needed because Hogan's act was getting tired and uh, they, they tried to go that route and redo the WWF. They brought in a fake Ultimate Warrior, called him Renegade. None of that stuff worked. So they went the realistic route, and, and it paid off in spades for a while. So uh, that makes another NWO number two on my list also. Nice. All right, boys. Well, that brings us to our number ones. But like every week before we get into our top picks, let's do some honorable mentions as well. Let's do the stables that didn't quite make – our top tens. I'll start with my honorable mentions. My first honorable mention is the inner circle. That is the, uh, the stable that's currently going strong in AEW. That is Chris Jericho, uh, Sammy Guevara, the tag team of, uh, Santana and Ortiz and Jake Hager, um, who used to be Jack, Jack Swagger back in, uh, WWE. Um, yeah, it's just, it's anchored by Jericho, you know, without Jericho, that, that thing doesn't move, doesn't work, but they're just so funny and so entertaining as an outfit. It's, it's great. And for, you know, just to have them as, you know, kind of, uh, foils for the elite, you know, they're, they're, you know, I kind of liken them to, uh, you know, like Skeletor and his group going up against He-Man, you know, it's like, it's, they're, they're evil, but they're, they're fucking hilarious as well. So yeah, I love the inner circle. They're in my honorable mentions. Also in my honorable mentions, Bob mentioned them earlier, the undisputed era down in NXT, um, Adam Cole, Roderick Strong, and then the tag team of, uh, O'Reilly and fish. They were, they're impressive, man. They're, they're damn impressive. And and like Bob said, when, you know, they dominated NXT, they held all the belts. They were the one-stop shop. They were NXT for a long time there, and that goes a long way. So, yeah, Undisputed Era. My next honorable mention is the Nation of Domination. Um, I was always a big fan of the Nation of Domination. I love Farouk. I love D'Lo Brown. You know, Mark Henry, I could take or leave, but, you know, he was serviceable in the nation, you know, and, and the Godfather, you know, you know, he didn't become the pimp until after he let, he left the nation. He was just kind of there as the muscle. And then things really started taking off when, you know, they, they brought the rock on, um, you know, when he started becoming a heel after his disastrous babyface debut, he goes into the nation and just turns everything around. So, yeah. 
Nation of Domination there had a really strong run um, at the start of the Attitude Era. You know, they weren't long for the world, but, you know, for when, for what they were, they were a great stable. Um, my fourth honorable mention, you, both of you mentioned them in your top tens. That's The Shield, um, Reigns, Moxley, and Rollins. They, you know, what more can you say about them that hasn't already been said? They were a great, great stable, great team there for, for years until they had to split up. And now they're all at the top of their games individually. But when they were coming up and came up together, they definitely made an impact. And my last honorable mention, I know Adam mentioned uh, the McMahon Corporation in his top 10. I'm going to go for the corporate ministry as my last honorable mention. It takes McMahon's corporation, melds it with the Undertaker's Ministry of Darkness, and together you have the corporate ministry. Best of both worlds, man. And they were all out for Austin's head, and it was it was great. Uh, at least I thought so. Until, you know, I thought it was corny that McMahon, you know, he was the higher power after everything, whatever. That was kind of stupid. Everybody yeah. said that coming. But the corporate ministry, I thought as a whole, you know, you had the corporation like Big Boss Man and the Stooges and everything, and you mixed them up with, you know, the Undertaker and the Acolytes and Midian and Viscera. And I think it was, I, I think, you know, low key, they were a pretty good stable. So, yeah, they're my last honorable mention. How about you, Bob? You know who originally was the first choice for the higher power, right? Who's that? Good old indie sensation, uh, Christopher Daniels. That's oh. right. I heard about that. Yeah. An angel yeah. was supposed to be, but Vince at the last second felt that no one would know who the hell he was. So they just decided to shit can the idea and Vince took over. Yeah. But it would have been interesting, I guess, but oh well. Um, my honorable mentions, Adam mentioned them earlier. Uh, Shane Douglas's answer to the four horsemen, and that was the triple threat. Um, originally with uh, Dean Malenko, Chris Benoit, like Adam mentioned, they were all champion at one time, and then those two end up leaving, and Douglas leaves too when he went to go become Dean Douglas, and then he comes back, um, joins up with Chris Candido and primetime Brian Lee. And then Brian Lee ends up trying to go after Shane Douglas. So then they replace him with Bam Bam Bigelow. Uh, Bigelow tries going for the title. So then they replace him uh, with Lance Storm. Then they kick Lance Storm out of the group. And then he ends up coming back and he teams with Candido. Uh, They were still fun to watch. Like you said earlier, Adam mentioned a lot about them, but uh, they were a fun group. One of ECW's better stables that they had, but uh, that's my first choice. The second one was mentioned by both of you, and that's the New Day. Um, like you said earlier, the New Day is fun to watch. Kofi Kingston, when he was going for that title run, that was a lot of fun trying to watch him um, make it. And when he finally won it, uh, that's a genuine reaction to seeing his teammates uh, cheer him on. That was a lot of fun. It was a genuine moment there. But, uh, yeah, they, they beat uh, Demolition's 28-year streak of longest reigning champs of 488, uh, 83 days. And, you know, they've, they're, they're, I think they headlined WrestleMania once, like, uh, as the hosts of WrestleMania and still just fun to watch, you know, the Kofi and the Royal Rumble and everything that they do together. New Day's always a good time. 
Uh, the next one is, like you mentioned earlier, Tony, the Elite, uh, Omega, the Young Bucks, Cody. I, too, still throw Adam Page and Marty Scroll in there because, to me, they were a part of it, you know, uh, at the beginning, even though um, Scroll's not a part of it. But I just heard his contract with Ring of Honor is up, so I think he might be jumping over hopefully soon. That'd be fun to watch him join the group. Um, mm-hmm. But I always like the Elite. Then... Like you mentioned, the Nation of Domination, which was originally created in the, the USWA by PG-13. Shout out to your boys, PG-13, right there, Tony. Um, <laughs> you know, you had, you had, the original was was Farouk and PG-13, and you had Sabio Vega and D'Lo Brown and your boy Crush in there. And then <sighs> they those guys left, and they created their own gang war stables where the DOA and Los Boricuas, and that was horrible to watch. But the good thing was the Nation of Domination – stood around D'Lo Brown was there and the Kama Mustafa and uh, Mark Henry and, and the rock. And like you said, you have these veterans, you bring in these rookies and that's exactly what I talked about when we first talked about the stables. Um, what do I look for? That's exactly what the nation of domination did. The, the rock was horrible as Rocky Maivia. Let's put him in here and protect them and let him learn from us. And he took off. Um, no one knew who Mark Henry was and Mark Henry was horrible. If you watch that Austin podcast that he did, he admits it, you know, like they, they, put him under their wing, they protected him, and he became a big star because of that. You know, so that was uh, – I was a big fan of the nation. And my final one is uh, one that has not been mentioned, and that was the uh, the Radicals, which is uh, Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero, Perry Saturn, and Dean Malenko. They were all a part of WCW. They were all unhappy because they were not used the proper way, and then all of a sudden they get out of their contract. They show up on Raw during a famous match with the New Age Outlaws and Steve Blackman and Al Snow, and the rest <laughs> is history. As they jump over the crowd, over the rails, and they destroy those guys, and um, they take off. And Benoit being the big one of the bigger names out of the group, and Eddie Guerrero made a name for himself. Malenko did too. Perry Saturn was, I think, the hardcore champ like twenty-seven times or something like that. But uh, don't quote me on that one. But Still, to me, the rattle goes together. When they came in, it was something different. It was fun to watch, and that's my last honorable mention. Nice. All right, Adam, how about your honorable mentions? Great choices from both of you, and I echo a lot of them. Uh, I have the radicals, too. Um, Just as Bob said, uh, I remember uh, Bob mentioned about the NWO and the internet presence not being there uh, when the first started, and he's right about that. But in the amount of time between then and when the radicals came in, which I want to say was either early '99 or 2000, um, I would be. It was '99, okay, that I would be at, at school, um, you know, in between classes, just looking at wrestling rumors online, and I watched that whole thing unfold about how those guys were unhappy. They wanted to come over and, and stuff like that. And, and the, I, I, I knew WWF was in need of some, some great workers. And those are four right there. It's just, and, and, and because I was so invested in the Monday night wars, I was like, you know, WCW keeps taking everybody. Let's go, let's take some of their people. Let them show, you know, let's show the moves boss here. Right. And they come on. And like you said, they just made an impact right away. Just all four of them, great wrestlers. Um, they of course had varying degrees of success, but it's great to watch them come in together and stick in WCW's face. And, uh, and again, just four tremendous workers. And of course, Eddie and Benoit took off the, the highest and, and are, you know, won the titles and, but all of them were just, uh, 
great workers and I know they they worked a lot of early tag matches. Unfortunately Eddie got hurt right away um when they first came in, but the other guys were in tag matches and um worked it was great to see them together and and uh just putting on the great wrestling they'd always put on on a big stage. Um, my next one is it was only really a part-time stable, but I put him here just because all the guys involved are multiple time champ went on to become multiple time champions and they're just so damn funny together. And that would be Team Angle. Uh Kurt Angle uh, running with Edge and Christian. Just tremendous stuff. They'd team together, they'd hang out together, and they'd just be geeks together. And it was a lot of fun to watch and all three of them just tremendous competitors. Um, I also put the Nation of Domination um, responsible for uh, The Rock becoming who he was. Uh, I do, yes, remember the early days of the Nation when, uh, yes, uh, PG-13 and Crush and Savio were in it and D'Lo with uh, Ron Simmons. And then uh, I remember uh, Farouk firing everybody except for D'Lo pretty much. Um, Mm -hmm. Savio was always a decent worker, I think. But obviously, they they gave him his own group and the infamous Gang Wars. I'm sure there's going to be a WWE Best of Gang Wars DVD coming out at some point. But uh, going back to the nation, uh, yeah, uh, they put The Rock in the group. And, you know, it it started out as a militant group, kind of. And The Rock just uh, was great as a heel. Like, he didn't care about Farouk's cause whatsoever. He just cared about himself and, and how he was the shit, basically. And and uh, him and Fru clashed over the leadership, and it really just put The Rock to where he is today. Uh, D'Lo Brown became a pretty notable star uh, during his time, too. Uh, he was he was in it pretty much the entire time from beginning to end and put on some great matches in his own right. And, of course, uh, Owen Hart even had a brief stint in the Nation of Domination, mm-hmm. too, which uh, Bob mentioned the DX parody earlier and, and the one guy who imitated Owen. So just some great workers in, in that faction was his name Jason sensation or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I remember that. And, uh, uh, free birds, as Bob mentioned, uh, an admiral mention, uh, as he mentions, uh, we've talked about him a few times on, on our shows, uh, instituted their own rule, won championships all over the territories, great feuds with the Von Erics, uh, just, uh, just guys you love to hate, and so many wrestlers from the past talking about watching those matches and wanting to become a wrestler because of the Freebirds and the Von Erics and what they were doing. So the Freebirds were trailblazing, stable early on. And my final honorable mention was uh, mentioned by both of you. Just missed the cut for me. Uh, the Dangerous Alliance. Um. Bobby Eaton, Arn Anderson, Rick Rude, Steve Austin, and and Bob's boy Larry Zabisco. Uh, four out of the five of them are amongst <laughs> the greatest wrestlers of all time. Um, all in one group, uh, they won a lot of gold. I think Rude had the U.S. title for almost a year, if I recall. Eaton right. and Arn, just great workers. It's a single or a tag, and and of course a young Steve Austin. And yeah, Bob mentioned Medusa. She was she was a great manager for them. And then she was a good wrestler in her own right. And they were, uh, even even when I was a kid and they were around and I was supposed to be rooting for Sting, I, I was like, well, these other guys kick a lot of ass too. So and I just remember going, 
Larry Zabisco is that old dude from AWA. What's he doing here? That was my reaction when I saw Zabisco in the Dangerous Alliance. <laughs> so they run up my honorable mentions. Nice. All right. Well, that brings us to our number ones, gentlemen. And I'm pretty sure I know what all of our number one is because they have not been mentioned. Yeah, they haven't been mentioned by any of us. Of course, I'm talking about Union. That that is my number one. Come on, man. Mick Foley and Test and Shamrock. The the show? Shamrock. Bob, Shamrock. Bob Holly. Wasn't Bob Holly in the Union? The Big Show. Oh, yeah. And the Big Show, too. Yeah. They all carried like two by fours and shit. Well, Hacksaw Jim yeah. Duggan should have been in it then. Yeah. Well, he was, he was too busy uh, collecting a paycheck for doing nothing in WCW. Good work if you can get it. Yeah, exactly. Ask Lanny Poffo. No, of course. Of course, I'm talking about the Four Horsemen. That's my number one. Is that your guys' number ones as well? Mine is Retribution, actually. Oh, shit. Okay, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, yeah. Anyway. Who, who's the guy in Retribution? What, what what's her name? Like Slapjack or Slap Nuts or whatever the hell his name is, and um, yeah, Bar or someone. But yeah, but yeah, I'm pretty sure all three of us have the Horseman as number one. Correct. Correct, sir. Only only because Steve McMichael, Paul Roma, and Jeff Jarrett were in it. Yes, exactly. Well, well, the one, the ones I'm taking as my number one is the one that has McMichael in it. So I don't know what the hell you guys are talking about. All the other, all all the other iterations can go to hell. (laughs) No, sadly, I don't. Of course, believe you. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) No, the Four Horsemen, of course, is the number one stable of all time. You know, you had, you had Ric Flair. Arn Anderson, Ole Anderson, um, Tully Blanchard, of course, the fifth of the four horsemen, J.J. Uh, Dillon as their manager slash business partner slash, you know, guy who does interference. It And like I said, as the four horsemen went on through the years, there were countless iterations of the four horsemen countless members the the main uh the main stalwarts being flair and arn anderson usually um but yeah i mean the four horsemen was when you talk about stables they're the gold standard man they're they're the guys who basically made stables and wrestling what it is you know they were they were the ones who made heel stables cool and you know they they were the ones who uh, who would go after dusty roads when flair was was uh feuding with them and start the riot you know after they they quote unquote broke dusty's leg in a steel cage match they had to cordon themselves off inside the cage because a riot was going on um it was 
you know, you hear stories about all of that. And like I said, there would not be stable, there would not be stables in pro wrestling, at least the way they are without the four horsemen. They're, they're, they're the ones who, who, who made everything possible in my opinion. How about you, Bob? What do you think of the horsemen? They're the best. <laughs> like like, yeah. like they say in Nacho Libre, they're the best. Um, <laughs> yeah. What I always love about the, the the horsemen is how they uh, they were just thrown together. They 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 decided they they did this attack on Dusty Rhodes, and just to save time, they said, "Okay, we're going to put you guys in front of the mic right now, and you guys just go ahead and talk." And Arn Anderson comes out with this promo where he's like, there's never been so much violence like this by such a small group since the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And boom, there it is. The four horsemen. It comes together. And like you said, just the, the, the feuds, the war. I always go back to the war games feuds that they would have with Dusty and, and Nikita Koloff and the Legion of Doom slash Road Warriors and Magnum TA and just uh, the Rock and Roll Express. And like you said, when they went after Dusty and they broke his leg. What I loved about the four horsemen, they were fantastic heels. But man, could they sell their ass off to make their opponent look amazing. That's what one of the things that was always stands out to me about them is just the way they always made sure they made everybody else around them look better. Just because they the fans always wanted to come see the horsemen get kicked their ass kicked. And that's exactly what they did. They won, they they cheated, uh, like Eddie Guerrero so that they 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 stole, they did everything they could to, to sneak out a victory, but they made it believable every single way that they possibly could. And they made their opponents always look amazing with it. And I mean, like you said, there's so many different variations, but to me, Arn, uh, Flair, Blanchard, Barry Windham, those were always my favorites right there. Um, just it's, it's, there's no other groups if there was no other four horsemen. So to me that there'll always be my number one. All right. How about you, Adam? How do you feel about the horsemen? Yeah, the, I'll just tag on to. They were probably, as a wrestling fan, the first stable I was exposed to, honestly. Because um, I would flip back and forth between leagues and stuff, and and I would just uh, I would see the horsemen and and you know Sting uh, Sting made a big impression on me as a kid too. Um, he was briefly a member of the Horsemen also, but. Like he was just, you know, for the time he was cool looking and and he, he could work really good and he was kind of a cool guy to get behind. But but uh, there's these these badasses just getting his number and and it's like that was my first exposure to a stable and I I kind of I just kind of dug the concept. It's like you know the. <laughs> It was like the movies almost, you know, you, you had your hero and there all these people conspired together to thwart the hero. And that's and that's kind of what Bob alluded to, the, the strength and numbers and, and, and making your making people look good. I mean, they made so many stars like Sting and Lex Luger owed their careers to a degree to, to the four horsemen. And, and there's just countless others. And. You know, again, uh, not only selling, but just just working great matches. I mean, we could laugh at Paul Roma, but I mean, he was a decent worker. Um, Mongo and Jeff Jarrett, maybe not so much, but 
most everybody in, in, in that group was just, even later on when you had guys like Barry Windham, you had Chris Benoit was in there, Malenko was in there, Brian Pillman. It's just the who's who of, of just great wrestling talent. It, it was almost like a badge of honor to be in, in the in the horsemen. It, it meant that you could wrestle uh, most of the time. Again, it got watered down sometimes, but you could wrestle, you could draw heat, you could make your opponents look good. Uh, yeah, the War Games matches, just, you know, you could work tags with more. Yeah, that was the other thing, too. It, was, it wouldn't always be... You know, you know, we were kind of talking about Evolution and Batista and uh, Flair were the main tag team. But, like, you know, those guys would team up with anybody. You could face any combination. So they kind of took the Freebird role to, uh, into consideration, too. It would be just any combination of them. And, and it didn't matter who you fought. It was just usually just a great match. They they just they carried the cards uh in NWA slash WCW for so many years. And then that's, that's what we're talking about. Just guys who, who uh, are a big part of the show and make the show great. And then I think nobody did it better than the horsemen. Amen to that, man. Enough that they were the number one pick for all three of us. So yeah, the four horsemen, man, the number one stable of all time. All right. So that's another episode, gentlemen. Um, what I wanted to do this episode, I'm kind of springing in this last minute, and what kind of want to do this, um, you know, kind of going forward in every episode, is kind of like a match of the week suggestion. It could be a match you just saw recently, or it could be a match from the past that you think the view, the listeners out there would uh, would dig. Uh, watching, you know, in the meantime, in between time until our next episode. Um, while you guys are thinking of a match to suggest, I'll start. Um, if you have the WWE Network, um, go back and watch this past week's episode of WWE, the NXT UK. Go back and watch this past week's episode because... The ta- the title match between the WWE NXT UK champion, Walter, and the challenger, um, Ilya Dragunov. I just watched that match a couple days ago. Jesus Christ. That is, if you want to just see 20, 25 minutes of two guys just beating the ever-loving shit out of each other, watch that match. It is something else, man. It is the one of the stiffest matches I've seen in a long time. And I, I went on Twitter and I guess Dave Meltzer himself even gave the match five stars. So if you want to see a really cool match that you may not have seen yet, go but like I said, go back to this past week's um NXT UK episode if you have the network and watch that match between uh Walter and Ilya Dragunov. You're not gonna be disappointed. Um, how about you, Bob? Do you have a, a match of the week you suggest? Since you kind of just sprung up the idea on me, that was my first pick because I had just watched that recently too, and I was I was amazed by it. I was like, "Holy shit!" Um, well, we I can double up on it. That's fine. Um, well, since you went that way, I, I mean, one of the ones we talked about earlier was um, the uh, Canadian Stampede match from uh, 
the Heart Foundation versus, uh, I believe, it was Stone Cold and uh, Ken Shamrock and Gold Dust and uh, was it the Legion of Doom? Adam, was it? Were those yeah, the last was, two guys? Yep. Yeah, I would say go back and watch that. That that was, like I said, it was, it was a pro Canada crowd, but it's still a, a, a great, fascinating match and still fun to watch. And I mean, you got a lot of fantastic wrestlers involved in that match and um i that that would be my choice since you kind of just sprung it out on me and, and i'm trying to think of something quickly uh and you stole my walter gimmick uh, i'll go with that one <laughs> yeah sorry to spring it up on you guys it was just something i thought of while we were recording so yeah uh definitely that canadian stampede match like you said it, it ties in with our stable episode this week definitely give that one a watch how about you, Adam? Do you have a, a match this week that you could suggest for people to go watch? Sure, I'll uh, I'll mention uh, since we we're talking about the Canadian Stampede, we can kind of go to to where the the whole thing started. Uh, that's WrestleMania thirteen uh, in our in our well, not our hometowns, but the our you know Chicago areas where we're all from um, at the Rosemont Horizon now, the Allstate Arena. WrestleMania 13, Bret Hart versus Stone Cold Steve Austin. This is before Austin went into the stratosphere um, and was supposed to be a heel, and Bret Hart was the face going in. Uh, it's, it's great to watch just because it's a great match. They're all over the arena. They're doing technical moves. It's an I quit match, so it's a submission match. Uh, Tony's pal uh, and ours, uh, Ken Shamrock, is the special referee. Uh, but I think something that makes a great WrestleMania match especially is just the crowd involvement. And I remember sitting in the audience and they announced the card beforehand and it was probably three-fourths of the audience were cheering for Brett and a quarter for Austin. And it shifted completely the other way during the course of the match. You just you just felt everyone shift to, boy, this Austin guy is is this awesome wrestler and Bret Hart's a whiny crybaby and he needs to stop moaning about being screwed. Uh, it was just uh, crazy. So um, they always work great together, but the just a tremendous match. And the, uh, you can watch the match. They had pretty much solidified Austin as a main eventer, I think, finally, because there were a lot of doubts about that when he joined the WWF. But, uh, you know, we were talking about how the Horsemen got so many guys over. Bret Hart helped Stone Cold become a legend that day. So WrestleMania 13, I quit match, uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Bret Hart. Cool. All right, guys, that's another episode. Any, any parting shots, anything you want to say to the audience until next week? Well, thanks for listening. Thank for listening. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, uh, I like the match of the week idea. That that's a that's a nice little twist to the show, and uh, I guess we all uh, were thinking pretty similarly today. We matched up on a lot of stuff. Yeah, 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 definitely. But a hey, great minds think alike, like we said, man. That's... Right. All right. Well, that's the end of another episode here on the Enhancement Talent Podcast. For Dr. Bob Lopez and for the Warsaw Blonde, Adam Kulavik, I'm Tony Lopez, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. See you later.